Right, hello everyone, and welcome to the first installment of Start Art History live from Masterpiece 2022. We're doing something we've never done on the podcast before, and that we're broadcasting live also from an art fair, which is quite cool, and, and with a small audience as well, which we've actually never done before. So hello, good afternoon. Uh, I have as my guest uh, today for this first installment, uh, most fascinating uh, curator, gallerist, artist, uh, disruptor, Xavier Ellis of uh, Charlie Smith. So thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Um, so first question for you is how has your masterpiece been so far this year? It's been good. I've, um, I've got a good dose of Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> I, I've become uh, very attached to my captor. Uh, we've, we've been received very well. We're selling well. And it's a very interesting context to have such a huge array of juxtapositions from contemporary to historical, antiquities, modern, but also Ferraris, boats, jewels, and books. It's fascinating. Yes, it's all, all manner of like sort of nice stuff <laughs> in Masterpiece, which is, is quite unlike some of the other fairs and we've talked about it in previous episodes as well. But I mean, well, this actually, let's just dive right into it because uh, you're here primarily in your role as a gallerist. Um, what was the thought process that underpinned your selection of works? As your stall, I think, is so cool this year. I was just introduced only today to, uh, to Hugh Mendes, whose work yeah. I absolutely love. But uh, your stall is quite eclectic and also with a strong emphasis, I think, on um, traditional skill and yep. technique, to my mind. So what, what was it for you? Well, yeah, that's always in there. That runs through my program. You know, it's a contemporary gallery, just in case people don't realize. Um, and I'm very interested in discovery as well. So we're, we're working with artists from uh, the beginning of their career, but as we get older together, then we might say um, emerging to mid-career artists. And yeah, technique is, is, is there. I tend to specialize in figurative painting, mm -hmm. um, and I do, everything I do is very instinctive, and I do respond to technique to some degree, but also it has to be underpinned by um, a, a psychological or emotional intensity. So that's, you know, that's what I'm looking for myself. Um, the selection here, I wanted to be quite minimal. And as you can see, we've um, I've varied the scale from small to large. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a representation of, of, of what we do. No, it's cool. I mean, it's, I, I think it's a really successful booth, actually. Um, what, now, you, as we said, uh, you started your career as an artist, yes? Yes, but didn't end my career as an artist. Well, no, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, touche. Um, I, I quite like your art, actually. Um, but how does your work and your training as an artist impact the decisions that you make as a gallerist? Uh, I th yeah, I mean, I, I started this journey being an artist, and the reason I said that, just to clarify, is that I remain an artist as well. So I am artist, gallerist, curator, educator even. I'm about to launch uh, a, an online art academy called Contemporary Art Academy with a, a, an excellent um, educator partner called Matthew Gibson. Such a cool idea. Yeah, and um, I think that there's a flow between all of these disciplines. Um, the advantage, I think, I have of being an artist gallerist, because I, I kind of have the feeling you might have artist gallerists and banker gallerists. <laughs> and then maybe some sort of sliding scale in between. Sure, um, I, I know what so you mean. I, I know I what you mean. I am starting as 
uh, artist gallerist. But what I can tell you for sure, it gives me a good understanding of the processes, um, what, what it's like to be an artist, what it's like to have to hit those deadlines to make the work, to have the work shown, to be at the private view, to be selected, to, to, to sell or to not sell. So I, you know, I can talk to my artists very... I mean, I talk to them simultaneously as gallerist, curator and artist. So sure. I, I do have a, a strong understanding in that sense. Okay, now you've, uh, through Charlie Smith, and actually you are Charlie Smith. Yes, that is... I do answer Where does the name Charlie. come from? It's a family name. I, I, I wanted to keep my name for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Smith is the other side of my family. So okay. I am a Smith as well as an Ellis. Nice. And Charlie Smith was my grandfather, actually. And it's a, it's a name that runs through the family. Um, good, work hard, play hard, farmer bunch of Smiths. Um, and it's, so it's an authentic pseudonym. And I thought it sounded all right. No, that's great. It does sound, it, it does have a ring to it. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's very cool. But now, through Charlie Smith, though, you've exhibited in a number of unusual locations. You've done um, a regular series with Freeze and working with the Saatchi Collection, um, as well as for many years upstairs at a pub yeah. in East London, if memory serves. What, how do you find working somewhere like Masterpiece different? to some of those uh, uh, other sort of unorthodox locations? Yeah, uh, well, it's quite unorthodox itself, actually. Being in an extraordinarily luxurious tent in Chelsea is perhaps the most unorthodox show <laughs> Isn't I've Isn't it done. weird? Do we not, all of us, <laughs> everyone in this room, inhabit such a weird world when we can regard being in a luxurious tent in yeah. Chelsea as orthodox in some way. Yeah, that exactly. seems unremarkable yeah. in some way. But yeah. Everything's relative. <laughs> and I, actually, I had this conversation with my assistant uh, before doing it, and I, I said to her, shall we go Chelsea or shall we bring Shoreditch to Chelsea? And she said, we'll bring Shoreditch to Chelsea. And I agreed, so we did. But what goes um, into bringing Shoreditch to Chelsea? Pardon? What goes into bringing Shoreditch Well, you know, we just have to be, again, we have to be, well, I say again, this conversation we were having earlier, but we have to be authentic. We have to be ourselves. <laughs> and, and yes, I ran a space above a pub in Shoreditch for 11 years. I curated a huge show called The Future Can Wait yep. for 10 years. And we started out in Brick Lane. We were, basically, the idea was to... Um, present the biggest, this is with Simon Rumley, a, a co-curator, filmmaker, collector, and um, we just wanted to present the most ridiculously huge exhibition we could of young emerging artists, and so we, you know, we went out and we found these great locations in the old Truman Brewery, and at that time I wanted to basically replicate or take some of the sort of good things from the art fair model. You know, do it for a week, so we did it during freeze week, as you said, mm -hmm. put it on for a week, make it really snappy, high intensity. Um, basically, to do a satellite event, an art fair scale, but not an art fair, show the work as it should be shown. Um, and it was, it was very successful, it, there was a big fuss about it, and fast forward six or seven years, and the Saatchi Gallery approached us about partnering with New Sensations. Yes. So we thought we'd be a bit more grown up and find somewhere in town rather than the east, and found this, again, 22,000 square foot space in Bloomsbury Square, mm -hmm. which was an incredible place in Victoria House, quite museum-like, but a little industrial as well, so it suited us very well. And so we went in with the Saatchis, they had their section, we had our section. Um, and we were generally considered to be the better show.
<laughs> Agreed. Sorry. Um, but no, no, not not at all. I mean, now you're in terms of of working with gallery space, though. If memory serves, you you have um, you started your your career working as a gallerist uh, in was it Clapham? I yeah. Believe, if yeah, yeah, serves. yeah. Um, so you moved up to town and yeah. then into Bloomsbury. You're in the art fair kind of environment now. Out of all of these different ecosystems, which do you most enjoy curating? In, or, or, um, oh gosh, I mean, like I said, I'm quite enjoying it here, but I, I sort of in a strange kind of way. Um, yeah, they all, they're, they're, they're different because. I, I, like, I, quite, I do quite like doing spectacular things, so I might have to say doing something as huge and high impact as the future can wait is really mm. you know, a great thing to do. I mean, we, we capped that off with a, a fundraise show because we had an artist who sadly died and we did a fundraise. Maybe that was the ultimate moment in my career so far. It wasn't just me, it was Simon and artists I work with who also curate Reese Jones, Kira Bennett, Alex Jean Morrison and... and and it was hugely successful, and we raised a lot of money for the family. Um, and it was incredible, really. The artist community came together and donated work. And uh, the owner of the brewery, who we got to know well, Jason Zalouf, gave mm -hmm. us the space. But we, we had everything for free. One of my collectors, Stephen Carroll, owns a rum uh, company, mm -hmm. which is quite handy. Um, Don Papa Rum. So oh, they, did, they did the bar. Um, so I think that was... that. That was an ultimate experience because we knew we were doing something so fundamental as well. Isn't that such a cool idea, though, that, I mean, once you move away slightly from the kind of institutional aspect of, of working with, with Saatchi or working with Freeze or, or whomever, uh, when, when you're calling, calling the shots yourself, I think it, it provides this, this flexibility that you can't just call in mates and say, let's see what, yeah. let's see what, let's see what comes up, which, again, does speak to a point that, that you and I were... Uh, discussing earlier today about about authenticity, about uh, keeping it real, uh, yeah. as, as it as it were. So, with that in mind, that idea that authenticity or or meaning what you're doing in mm -hmm. some way is something I know is very important to you. Is that uh, the the listeners to the show know that's a real thing with me as well? Um, what is it that you want the punters at Masterpiece to take away from stall two on two on seven? I believe it is. Two on seven. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what, what do you want people to come? I mean, obviously, you want them to come away with a work Paintings. of art and, 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 and <laughs> with an orange dot. But you know, it's first time I've called them. Heard them called punters this I, week. I believe actually, punters but, they are. Um, uh, well, I you know, I'm I really consider that I'm in a niche, a niche within a niche, in terms of. As mentioned earlier, I just do what I believe in. So I select and develop relationships with my artists. Um, and I want to take them to market, mm -hmm. as we're doing this week. And I'm looking, you know, it's like-minded curator, gallerist, dealer, working with like-minded artists, because the, their authenticity is also essential. I have to get mm -hmm. to know them and know that their work is real, and also know that I can work with them as well, and that's it, vice versa, I'm sure. Um, and we're looking for a like-minded audience, like-minded collectors. So, um, yeah, like I say, it's niche, but we're just trying to find our people. And the other people are absolutely welcome as well, but we're trying to find our people that understand what we do. I see what you mean, yeah. And what, I mean, how would you, could you pinpoint, like, what it is you're trying to do? What, is there any, like, any particular, like, do you see, when you look at an artist's work, do you say, okay, I see this, I see this, I see this? This could be cool. Well, I, I, I touched on it earlier, I think, in terms of I, I have an instinctive response. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
you know, we go back to the question about the technique, but really, I think in answer to that question, I, I'm looking to be um, sort of moved or challenged, really. Mm. So I'm, I'm looking for or waiting for an emotional response or a psychological response. So I want that work to hit me. And then that somehow, you know, we are all different and we all react to different work Absolutely. in different ways, but, but we find our tribe. And I think if you have that cohesion within your programming, then you find your tribe of artists, but you also find your tribe of collectors as well. This is 100% the case. I think one of the things that differentiates gallerists or curators who are actually doing like a good job, or who would I would think are doing a good job. As opposed to from, No, certainly, I, oh, I perish the thought. Um, as opposed to the, sort of the, the, the banker gallerist model you know, we were joking about earlier, um, that for curators or gallerists that are really doing a good job is that they, as you say, look for their tribe or something that on a subjective level hits yeah. for them, and taking that leap of faith and mm. saying, okay, I think that this could translate well towards a lot of other people as well. In some ways, I was just thinking while you were talking, I was thinking about, uh, I decided to not put you on the spot, so I won't put you on the spot with this question, but I'll, I'll answer it myself. Um, I was thinking about what is the last new artist work I saw that I had like an emotional response to? You know, when is the last time I saw somebody's work I hadn't seen it before and I went, oh wow, as opposed to just, you know, that one level thing of, oh, that looks cool, mm. or one level up from that, I could probably sell that and make money, yeah. you know, towards the thing where I think like, Oh, I'm just happy to sort of live in a yeah. world where, where that lives. Actually, and I do have, a, have an answer for that, actually, is that um, we've recorded, not yet released a podcast with uh, a great London artist named Laura Julian, um, whose abstract work I absolutely love and had never seen in person before I've seen, you know, digital images of it. Mm. Um, but uh, went to her studio to, to record and was really like, hey, just like, these are really beautiful, you know, nice things. I bet people want this stuff, you know. Um, and I just thought it was uh, just kind of a cool idea for someone in your line of work to be able to kind of free-range roam around the art world and just find people or find situations or create situations where people can have those, those kinds of experiences. But how does that translate into being somewhere like Masterpiece? Because you have relatively little control over the space. I mean, you have the stall you have. Yeah. But how, do you, how do you try to like, uh, engender one of those kind of cool experiences somewhere like this? Well, we just have to do what we do. So, you know, we take the, we take the work and, and, and we rely on the work to, again, mm. find, its, find its people. But I'm going to answer the question that you didn't ask Oh, will you? Me oh okay. Because well, if it, you will. it relates to this, actually, in our experience at Masterpiece, in that um, the, I remember seeing Melissa Kimes' painting at London Art Fair, I think the last one pre-lockdown. And I was absolutely blown away by a painting and, and I kind of, I just wanted to stay and look at it. It was on somebody else's booth who I've been working with. Um, and um, I started working with Melissa during lockdown in a, a work on paper initiative that I started called Project Papyrophilia. Um, and then showed her for the first time in September in, at Volta Basel and she was incredibly successful and I've taken her to a series of art fairs this year and she's been very successful and I brought her here and we had a big diptych on the back wall on opening night. Um, it sold to a significant private collection in New York, Susan and Michael Hort. Of course. Um, and I could have sold that painting five to ten times over this week. So, so directly from me getting that hit at London Art Fair, starting to work with the artists, having great success, 
you know, I love the work, it's mm. incredible work. But in a natural fact, I thought, I thought that would be quite niche, but, it, but I, it's proving to have really, she, Melissa, is proving to have very broad appeal as well, and, yeah. and that includes very significant collectors. And she did exactly the same thing here at Masterpiece. So what the experience I had at London Art Fair, a whole load of people had here at Masterpiece. That's great. So it just spreads and spreads and spreads. Yeah, yeah. And it sells, which is also absolutely you know, obviously yeah. a plus. So let me ask you this. You have to join the waiting list now. They'll I, 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 sign me up. Yeah. Um, how, how important is the money end of things? It's important because, because you, you have to keep it rolling. So... Mm. Um, it's yeah, it's very important. I mean, there's you can never let the money. I, I, I from my point of view, you can't let the money um, uh, override your aesthetic, conceptual consideration. So I would never go to the money and sacrifice or jeopardize my integrity, if you see what I mean. So there's plenty of artists out there that you can take and sell very well, but if they mm -hmm. don't suit what I do, then I'm not going to do it. So um, it's it's. I do have a purist position. You know, there's a belief system <laughs> involved in this. <laughs> How quaint but, in contemporary but, art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we but we have to sell because uh, yeah. you know I'm, I don't. It's not a, a, a backed enterprise. I mean, the future can wait was, but we continue and have continued through selling work. And mm. you know, over the years. You know, I've sold millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of, of contemporary work, and not at huge price levels for you know per piece. Sure. So you imagine that is a lot of work and a lot of volume. Yes. It's not just important for me to keep things rolling, but to the artist as well. Absolutely. And as we grow up, you know, of course, you start off with them needing to pay for studio and rent and materials and so on, survival, but then you get to the point where there's family and, you know, whatever else comes with that. So, yes, it's important, but it, 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 it doesn't govern decision-making. Now, about how many artists, roughly, do you work with through Charlie Smith these days? Well, I represent 13 artists. Mm -hmm. so I kind of see it almost like concentric circles in that I have a core, and then I have an outer core of artists that I work with frequently, mm -hmm and then an outer core of artists that I've worked with sometimes, and then an outer core that I might, artists I might, might sure. work with once or twice. And, you know, if you imagine through these various initiatives that I launch and continue, then there's a very wide network of artists that I have worked with over the years. And also some of them, you know, some, in fact, I was going to say some of them kind of come back. I remember, because I've been doing a bit of archiving recently, I, I've, I've put all of my projects under one banner called Ellis Smith Project. Mm -hmm. So uh, I haven't really gone public with this yet, but everybody should just look at ellismithprojects.com and that, that gives you everything. And because I've been archiving recently, I, um, I, you know, I was going through images of a show I did about 20 years ago at Clapham. And there was an artist called Joanna Whittle in the show. And, okay. I, and, and you know, I did this post and I've had a look at what some of these artists are up to now. And I looked at her work and I just thought, wow, that is looking really good. And so I asked her to send me a couple of paintings. She'd gone from sort of very big, loose landscapes to very small, quite tight landscapes, actually. Um, and um, I, she sent me the paintings and I just thought, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're as good or better than the images. So I took her to Volta Basel, showed her for the first time in 20 years and sold paintings, introduced her to new collectors. So... 
you know, what I do is very rhizomatic as well. You know, I let the shoots shoot off and things come back and there's a lot of interconnectedness with, mm. within my projects, but my networks. And the longer you go on, the more that expands. Now, you mentioned rhizomatic. So what, what role does something like philosophy play in the work that you do? Because I know this is something that you've studied, um, you know, at, at various institutions, um, critical theory, philosophy, the work of uh, Gilles Deleuze um, and, and others. Do you, are, do you feel like what you do is informed by, by philosophy? Uh, yes, but it's, um, well, it is without doubt. Uh, there's, a, there's a philosophical underpinning. Mm. Um, maybe, you know, if you, can we say this is theoretical? I don't know, but you know, what, what I do is within a sense of contemporary romanticism, really. Um, but, you know, well, we've both mentioned Deleuze, and you know, he's a, he's a philosopher that's been very influential, but when I was introduced to him, when I was doing my MA at City and Guilds, I, it wasn't as if I sort of thought, wow, that's really cool. I'm going to think and operate like that. It was actually, wow, I think like that. And I he's, know what you mean. He's yes. going to put it's it. It's reinforcing. It, it, yeah, he's, he's just, I mean, it's pretty dense, isn't it? But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's you not know, I, I, I always find, that, and, and actually, um, a friend of mine who I studied with, he's now a professor at the Courtauld, Gavin Parkinson, and okay. he once said to me that, um, you know, yeah, read the philosophy, but read around it as well. And mm. I do that when I'm researching. I, 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 I go to the source, but I also read around it. I listen to podcasts, um, you know, go onto YouTube and so on. So I kind of like take, try and take as much information as possible. But, you know, again, when I then on the other hand, so there's a philosophical underpinning to the way that I operate and what I do and what I'm interested in. But at the same time, when I go to artists, then I, I'm really excited to read their philosophical um, influences and what informs their work philosophically. So I, I think there's, I would say there's quite a heavy philosophical, psychological underpinning to what we do and what the, mm. when I say we, I, but also the artists that I work with. Now this, this brings up a really interesting question um, because obviously I think your stall is absolutely great. I've, everything I've seen in Masterpieces, I've been very impressed with, uh, I, I'm sure that maybe some of this is because we've all been on ice for so long. It just feels nice to, yeah. to, to be back in the environment. But, um, but appertaining to, to this discussion about philosophy and about uh, the, the rhizome and all the rest of it, have you had an opportunity to see the work that you're showing in a different light based on the stalls that are surrounding, or have you made any unusual discoveries being in this, again, this Stockholm Syndrome world. <laughs> when, you, when you enter into Masterpiece or Freeze or any of the big multi-day fairs, you know, you, you sort of lose track of real time. You know, they, they, they publish a newspaper every day in Freeze for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but since you've been here, you know, day in, day out, I mean, what, have you noticed anything that's, that, that's surprised you in that way or new ways of thinking about the work that you're showing? Uh, no to the first question, yes mm -hmm. to the second question in, in that... Um, I was already aware that my programming has a dialogue with the historical. Um, and I show at London Art Fair, and we often have that conversation about, you know, I'm showing contemporary artists, but that, you know, that some, I mean, Sam Jackson is a, is a good case in point, who there is a dialogue, and Hugh Mendes as well, actually, between what they're doing now and mod Brit artists, for example. Mm. Or if we think about Emma Bennett, who we have here, there's a, you know, she, there's a strong dialogue with um, you know, Dutch, Flemish still life painting, so old master still life painting, modernism as well. So I, I was, that's already 
loaded in. I was already aware of that, so I haven't had any revelations on that front. However, yeah, I've, I've discovered and just looked at some uh, amazing objects. And, of course, one needs to be on the stand, but I come in early on, uh, on some mornings and have a look around. And, uh, I, I mean, I, everybody has to come here. I just think it's, 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 it's quite a mind-blowing experience. I mean, one that really got me was the um, Marie Antoinette's necklace. Mm. Because I've done a lot of deep research into the French Revolution, so that's a kind of special interest one for me. Um, but yeah, it's just packed full of incredible objects. Actually, it's really interesting. Um, they say I'm, I'm familiar with, with some of the work you've been doing around the revolution. And it's something that keeps popping up. I don't know if this is a theme in 2022 or if it bodes ill for the future or what, but I'm sure um, everyone who's been to the Cornelia Parker retrospective at Tate Britain um, will have noticed in the second room of that show, there's, a, there's an Oliver Twist doll that's been bisected um, by the guillotine that was used to behead Marie Antoinette. That's and true. I was yeah. having a chat with some of, my, um, some of my undergraduate students the other week about it, and they were saying, well, why did it have to be Marie Antoinette's guillotine? Couldn't it just be any guillotine, you know, and, and just make it up or something? I said, well, no, I think there's like some sort of like psychic, sort of psychical damage that gets done unless, it ha unless it's that specific thing. And looking at something like um, a piece of jewelry, you know, owned by, by Marie Antoinette, there is a kind of ineffable, I don't know, I mean, at risk of sounding like a hippie, a sort of aura around the object or the sense that the, that thing has, has seen stuff, mm. you know, in a, in a way that we can't necessarily fall back on when we're looking at buying or selling art of our own lifetime, mm. you know, because the art hasn't, hasn't lived enough. Yeah, yet I, I completely the, agree, absolutely. I mean, I, I think with that, you're, you're touching the, the time and the place mm. as to when and where those events happened. So it's as close as we're going to get to feeling it or imagining it. Yeah. Um, so ab absolutely, with, without doubt. And, and of course, yeah, there's a fetishization as well, isn't Huge. there? You know? yeah. and, and that's part of collecting. And I, and I think, uh, I believe there are two Ferraris here, and one used to belong to Michael Schumacher. Oh, is that right? I hadn't noticed and, that. And therefore, that has higher value. Yes, because Schumacher revenue. Sort of like the, uh, the inns you get in the United States. George Washington slept here. You know, yeah. so you can, you can <laughs> yeah. charge more <laughs> for, yeah. the, for, yeah. the, for the feather bed. Uh, that's, no, that's true. It's, and this, well, this is a, such an interesting part of, of thinking about the, the ecosystem of the art business in the 21st century because I know very few gallerists, dealers, choose whatever term you want, you know, people that sell art for a living. Um, very few people who would openly say, I, I, Gagosian doesn't say this, uh, that, oh, I'm in it for the money. This is, you know, I'm trying to stay paid. Mm. Everyone says, not everyone, but most people, you know, say the same thing. Oh, I have to have a passion. I feel this, I feel that. Mm. But we still have to have to buy and sell, buy and sell this, this stuff and, and talk about. Mm. This, this, this stuff and, and being good or ill, but ultimately it comes down to, I think, for people in your line of work or in my line of work or, or people whose job it is who are here to buy this stuff is ultimately to make a kind of leap of faith, value judgment about whether this is worth X amount of pounds or not. I mean, yeah, there's a Ferrari, of course, is you know, kind of one, one end of it, but I'm thinking more about like a piece of canvas with some paint on it or, yeah. or a piece of paper with some pencil marks on it. Yeah. That how if we're not going to acknowledge that ultimately this is just a business and it's all buying and selling of stuff, then how do you ascertain 
what the worth is on something like that. You know, I, 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 I think about this only because I was having a chat the other day with a friend of mine in my kitchen news, and we were talking about some art I had in my home. And um, they pointed to something in, on my kitchen wall and said, well, that, for example, that, I, I love that, you know, something like that. Why, why can't we get stuff like that? And it was actually, this sounds like such a joke, but it's actually true. It's actually a painting that my daughter did mm. for the Royal Academy Young Artist Show, uh, which yeah. was like six. It didn't get in. No, it did, I don't, not yeah, to brag. No, it it was sort of keep sent, sent right back. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine thing. I have it because I, I love my kid. You know, and, and I found it so interesting that it was like this person who had no concept of, of their, you know, that, that my daughter made this thing. They just saw something they thought it was cool. Um, that I, I didn't get the nerve to ask them, well, what would you pay for it? You know, before yeah. telling them that it belonged to my, my kid. But I mean, but this, then my final question for you again, as, as, as a gallerist, specifically mm -hmm. more than as an artist and curator, is how do you value the work that you sell? I mean, how, how do you place a price on it? What, yeah. what kind of logic goes into that? Well, I guess, I mean, that, uh, price and value are different things, mm. aren't they? So, Quite so. That, I maybe, mean the number, yeah. I mean the number at the bottom of the, <laughs> yeah. of the blurb. Um, I mean, essentially, you know, there, 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 there are market forces. Um, we, we start with, again, the artists need to, they need to be respected and appreciated. Um, if an artist has particularly low prices, then in actual fact, I think it's quite exciting to take them to the market with low prices because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people to, to buy in. Um, and that might be the prominent collectors, but it also could be younger or first time collectors. Mm -hmm. and, and I value them all. You know, anyone that wants to buy a, a work of art, I, I respect and value. And, and just, just as with artists, you know, today's big artists were yesterday's starting out graduate artists and could say the same thing about collectors as well. For sure. Um, so, you know, one appreciates that. But in terms of the price, of course, some artists, many, even, you know, graduate artists now are very savvy. And a lot of them at master's level, they've already exhibited. So there will be an established price bracket. Mm. Um, you need to factor in what is going to be their bottom line. When, when, you know, you're the artist, you've just, you know, you've got this painting that you want to sell. When are you unhappy with what you sell it for? You know, so yeah. you've got to start with that bottom line and you've got to work up from there. Um, and of course it goes by scale and it goes by experience and mm -hmm. track record. And then, it, and then, you know, the prices, they, 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 they grow as, as we go on. Um, there's this thing called inflation I've been reading about recently <laughs> yeah, as well. It's, it's abroad, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that artists need to be respected there as well because they still have to pay their bills. So, of course. you know, uh, Boris might tell us that other people shouldn't inflate their prices and wages, but I, I happen to disagree with that. Well, quite, every, quite so. Yeah. So, um, so there's a kind of... But, you know, the other thing is that it's, that, that it's worth what somebody will pay for it. Right? That's true. Um, but, you know, really, inherently, it's complex, but there's always a starting point, and then we build from there, and, and then the price rises, and we, and we go on, and we go on. Well, this is, the con this, is this perpetual thing, that, this dance between um, artists, gallerists, museums, collectors, you know, that's the, the kind of museum end of things is more, more, more what I'm involved with, but this thing of whether artists are willing to be in it for the long haul mm. in terms of not 
making a quick buck. Yeah. And I mean, more, how many times have we seen this happen where an artist works straight out of school, you know, absolutely skyrockets, people buy up entire shows, all this, you know, they're, they're hot, as yeah. it were. Yeah. Um, then comes the inevitable dump two to five years later, and then their work becomes effectively unsellable. Yeah. Now, that's largely a function of all the people involved in that process not believing in the work per se, mm. but treating it as a kind of... Um, a commodity. A, a commodity, an investment vehicle. Yeah. You know, where, whereas the thing you're talking about, when you, you're led by passion, then you can develop a sort of long-term relationship between artists, collectors, institutions, galleries, yeah. museums, and the like, and then, and then it works. I mean, so this is why I asked, do you... Do you have you ever found, please don't name any names, have you ever found artists that you've worked with where you thought, no, actually, we should keep your prices lower in order to, to, to spread you around better or to, to, to create a stronger roots? Or is it just, okay, let's see what we can not, do? Not keep them lower, if I understand the, the, the question correctly, mm. but, it's, but you know, keep them attainable because also, mm. you know, as you mentioned, the art world is a complex ecosystem, and so... Yes, you might go into an environment such as this and you could arguably triple your prices, let's say. But then again, that might not necessarily work at another art fair, another art fair. Mm. And so we have to respect our collectors as well. We don't just mark up for the sake of it. Of we keep our prices the same in all currencies, in all environments, at all art fairs, exhibitions, etc. Um, so, uh, no, you don't keep them low. You look to take them up because that's in the interest of everyone, including the collectors. So it's more of a gradual process. I, I think, you know, that super high price early on, I would say proceed with caution. It can work with some artists. And I, you know, I, I, I know an artist that I've shown, and I think I showed her first actually and sold a lot of work to the Saatchi Gallery. She did really well. She got picked up by a major gallery um, in... Germany, and she's a wonderful artist. Yelena Bulich is her name, and you know during the graduate days you could you could acquire work for a couple of thousand, let's say, and then not long later um, they were, I think I'll, I won't mention the prices, but a lot, lot, lot Higher. more than that. So you know she's showing at Art Basel, and she's extremely successful. Yeah. She's going into major collections, private collections, museums. But it, you know, if you see the work, you realize that the, 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 the value matches the price. Sure. Um, so there are, there are artists that can go big very quickly and sustain it if they have good galleries looking after them mm -hmm. and if they haven't got people that are just in for that quick buck, as you say, to, you, know, you could even say there's a little bit of care of duty there. You know, a gallery might come in and they just want to make the money and they don't care about yeah. the artist five years later because they've got the money and they'll move on to the next one. And we know that happens. Regularly, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is something, you know, something that I find really, really cool about Charlie Smith is that um, that seems to be not something you all are re you're remotely interested in, that it's not about that. Well, we don't, is, want to burn, cool. we don't want to burn people, but we, we want to build careers. Sure. You know, and, and, and as you said, it's a long game, and whenever I do talks in art colleges, you know, I always urge the graduate artist to, to really appreciate it's a long game. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you have to sustain that career and grow that career Absolutely. and do as much as you can. The longer you're in it, and also don't burn any bridges, you know, and the longer you're in it, the more happens and the more opportunity comes yeah. your way. Don't follow if and you do if good I, work. A piece of advice I've given more times than I can count <clears throat> to young emerging artists is don't pay any attention to the secondary market 
forever. Nah. Don't just die. Don't worry about that. We'll, yeah. we'll let you know when you need to worry about yeah. that. Until, until then, you <laughs> just... a few decades down the line, you Don't, don't sweat it. You're good. You're yeah. good. Um, well, that is all we have time for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been, been an absolute joy. Also, although before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming um, uh, project in terms of art education? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's an online art academy. It's, um, it's, we're running pilot courses at the moment. And we're starting with postgrad level, and um, it's called the Contemporary Art Academy. We should have a holding page around about now, even, but certainly we've got a, a very young Instagram page um, at Contemporary Art Academy. And the idea is that we are going to offer very, very high level education um, for competitive prices. So we want to do the best offering mm -hmm. for amongst the lowest fees and also pay our tutors very well as well. Perfect. And the idea is that this will be a global online art education system. And the feedback from the pilot courses we're running now um, is very positive indeed. I think it's absolutely what the world needs. And where can everyone get in touch with you? Uh, I would say have a look at um, Ellis Smith Projects mm -hmm. and you can find my email or Instagram pages. They'll, they'll to reach me. Of course, and as always, you can get in touch with us uh, through our website, Start Art History. Uh, like, rate, and subscribe, of course, um, to the podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow with another installment of uh, Lunchtime Live with Masterpiece 2022, as well as the following day. So thank you so much. Thank you. Done and done.